Good afternoon, Greg. How's it going? Hey, gentlemen. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Doing well, thanks for asking. We're going to get started in just a sec. I see Dylan and P, and I'm sure Dr. Jeff is on his way. But I do want to remind everyone that before we kick things off, tickets to Bitcoin 2023 are available now. We're going back to Miami. It's going to be May 18th to the 20th. If you missed Bitcoin 2022, if you missed Bitcoin Amsterdam, make your way out. Ticket prices will be going up soon. Use promo code BM Live to get 10% off. Dylan, welcome to the stage, man. Hey, guys. Foster, how are we doing, man? I'm excited for this. Awesome. Me too, Dylan. Jeff's on stage. How are we doing, Jeff? Hey, Dylan, Foss, Q, P, Chris. Good to see you guys. Hope you're all doing well. Happy to be here. All right, Foster, I think first thing we want to do is you, know, you are one of the most animated Bitcoin bulls and and over the last two years, fixed income bond bears on the planet. I guess just if you want to give us your, you know, the TLDR of, of you know, maybe your thesis behind that, where it currently stands. I saw you had a, you nailed a, you know, a TLT trade, although, you know, more of the platform has been, hey, stack Bitcoin, everyone needs a Bitcoin allocation, of which I wholeheartedly agree with. You know, what's your brief overview of the state of things? How are things looking out there? Well, thanks for having me, guys. I look forward to answering questions and learning as well as trying to, you know, give a perspective. And this I need to couch with. It's an opinion. And opinions are like sphincters, right? Every asshole has one. So don't overthink things. I'm not going to be able to give you all the answers. I can only give you answers to the, the best I can interpret them. And so I guess I'll summarize, Dylan, by saying I have never been more nervous about the state of the financial markets since literally 2007, okay? Just before the great financial crisis, it was the summer of 2007, and credit markets were imploding, and Jim Cramer had his famous rant. Now, I'm no fan of Jim Cramer's. That being said, if you guys remember in the summer of 2007, he got on stage with a uh, young lady named Erin something. Erin from CNBC. She doesn't work there anymore, but Erin uh, Burnett, I think her name is. Anyway, she asked Jim, what do you think the state of the financial markets are? And he just melted down. He goes, the Fed has no idea. And some of you are probably way too young to remember that, Dylan. I'm sure you are, but you can look it up on, look it up on the uh, NBC archives or whatever. But this was 2007. Subprime mortgage were gurgling. The, Jim Cramer called out the Fed to ease rates. And they did ease and stocks rallied. I'm going to say they rallied at least 10% from August 2007 into October 2007 because shorts got trampled. The short covering run to the, you know, run to cover your shorts, even though credit was getting destroyed. So stock markets rallied. It didn't solve anything because the credit markets were broken. And I guess I'll just fast forward to today. Credit markets in a large part, are not functioning properly. New, yield, new issue high yield is basically closed. There's an argument that the liquidity in the treasury markets, particularly for off-the-run bonds, is very poor. That's what happens when you have benchmark bonds and then you know old 10-year bonds that are now trading as five-year bonds because they are in a, you know, they're five years left to maturity. They're off-the-run bonds now. And the bid-offer spreads are poor. The yield curve is choppy because... You'll have a benchmark bond that yields 4% for a number and then an off-the-run bond that's a couple of months longer maturity yields 4 So that 10 basis points is not the mark of a healthy, a healthy functioning liquid treasury market. But nonetheless, treasuries are in bad shape. Credit Suisse is, you know, say your prayers. Deutsche Bank is, is on life support. So all of these things remind me of 2007 leading into 2008. Not a time to be a hero Keep your risk buckets small. Keep your positions manageable. And I can talk about the treasury market if you want, although I think we should just focus on credit if that's okay with you guys. But a quick comment on treasuries. If you put a gun to my head, I covered my treasury short. If you measured it in TLT from 160 down to 112, it's currently trading in the area of 96 Last time I looked, 95. I am small long, believe it. That shouldn't make anybody happy. It's for a trade. But at a 4% yield-ish in the 10-year, 
I don't see any value there. I see a potential bounce, a dead cat, cat, dead cat bounce. But certainly, who would buy bonds, 10-year treasury bonds, at a, at a four and change percent yield, 405 to be exact, when CPI is still double that? And, you know, the Fed deficit is imploding. The credit or the debt spiral is accelerating. Dylan, I want to hit this hard at some point, but I believe that treasury bonds are going to change from being an inflation concern to being a credit concern. And as you know, there's, there's three components of any yield, okay? The three components are, there's an inflation component, there is a liquidity component, and there is a credit component. And don't for a moment tell me that there is no credit risk in U.S. Treasury bonds, because if there was zero credit risk, nobody would be paying for insurance, credit default swap insurance on the U.S. government, which it currently trades in the area of 20 basis points for a five-year insurance policy on the U.S. Treasury. That's a de minimis amount, but it's not zero And it's my assertion that that amount could change meaningfully such that 10-year treasuries, while they may have a reduced inflation concern going forward, I think credit concerns could become a much larger component of your overall yield. So I'd like to throw that out for discussion. As you guys know, I spent my life in credit. Credit runs the world. There's a lot of blood on the streets right now. You, you've called it really well, okay? I will, I will say hats off to you, hats off to Dr. Jeff. I'm not as bearish as Dr. Jeff is when, I, when I'm talking from a trading perspective. But from an investment perspective, whatever happens after this November 2nd date, so two days from now when the Fed announces what their policy decision is, is going to take us into the new year, either with, you know, a little bit of optimism or absolute pessimism that the government or excuse me, that the treasury has an ulterior motive. I don't know where that is stands. So stay over your skis. Don't take too big a position. Hit my favorite saying, risk not thy whole wad. Okay. Keep powder dry. This is a game of capital preservation. Heroes are not made during markets like this. Okay. So over to you guys. All right. I'm going to throw a couple points, points your way and maybe, maybe clarifying or maybe just kind of questions when, when, when you see like, you know, the comparisons to 08 or, or, you know, leading up to the great financial crisis, a lot of times today you're seeing not like nonstop there's statistics, the worst X data point since 08, the worst 60, 40 portfolio performance since, I mean, some of, some of these stats are ever, Right. But you, the, you know, the OA analogies, maybe it's just because it was, you know, the previous big bust, but those are flying um, in terms of like the credit dynamic going, going into 07. Um, and, and I am familiar with that Jim Cramer rant. Um, if, you know, obviously didn't watch it live, but uh, after the fact during, you know, as the financial crisis unfolded, you actually saw yields on, on uh, treasuries go down. So bonds were getting a bit, but the credit risk component, whether it's subprime or housing, mortgage-backed securities, or like say, if, if you look at corporate credit spreads, those were blowing out, right? So there's the duration component of a bond, like what, what that risk, well, I guess, quote unquote, risk-free treasury, that, that baseline yield is offering you. And then there's the, the credit risk, like you have a credit score, I have a credit score, businesses have a credit score, sovereigns have a credit score, right? And so right now we're seeing, and, and the 10-year has has bounced back a little bit. The yields have fallen. Same with kind of most most long dated maturities, but still we've seen just a massive unwind in 2022. And it's like a you know all encompassing duration bubble is how I, I reference it one one time. Right, the sovereign debt bubble is a bubble in everything because that means you know the risk free rate in real terms was negative, and and you saw like you know the bond vigilantes kind of come back a bit in, in 2022. So I think right now, and, and tell me tell me if this is maybe a relevant way to think about it. The risk in, in 07, 08 was because of like the, the banking system and how they managed it and how they housed a lot of that like junk debt and securities on their books. The risk isn't so much maybe in the, in the banks, or, or maybe there is some, some hidden risk there, but it seems more so that because of the passive investment bubble, because of you know, the way that the 60-40 portfolio was only up only, 
for the last 40 years, it seems like the bubble as this duration component unwinds and as that long dated risk-free rate goes you know, way, way higher or has gone way higher, that the 60-40 portfolio pensions, we saw this in the UK, right? With those kind of the LDI where they were using those long dated bonds as collateral. It seems like that's maybe the breaking point. Like maybe that happens in the US, maybe not. But if there's, if, if treasuries, long dated treasuries are trading like shit coins, you know, there's some, there's some pretty big implications there in terms of how the, the overall financial system is constructed. So the question I propose is, although we really haven't seen the, the credit risk really, really in corporate land or at the sovereign level, I think that the thing that gets really interesting is if central banks are you know, supposedly re- reducing their balance sheet, supposedly going to continue to hike rates, when does the credit risk rapidly get priced in versus what we've already seen, which was the duration unwind? So a great question. The short answer is no one ever knows. The reality is that new issues reprice markets. Okay. And since there hasn't really been any new issuance in the high yield land, you can argue that the repricing hasn't occurred. There's secondary market trading. But if you bring a big new issue, like let's just let's take this Twitter example. Okay. Twitter is not going to be sold into the secondary market. The $13 billion of debt that Elon took on that was funded by the banks is going to stay on the bank's portfolios because if they did have to sell it into the secondary market, the banks themselves would lose about half a billion dollars, which is to say the yield that they proposed pricing the debt at for Elon and locked in with a commitment is no longer a market yield. So they'd have to sell it down at least 10 points which they don't want to do. They're low to take that mark-to-market loss. So they're going to hold it on their balance sheet and hope, quote-unquote, hope that the market rebounds. I mean, I've seen that before. If you remember in 2007, a famous quote by Chuck Prince, the CEO of Citibank, was on the LBOs of the day. He's like, well, when the music's playing, you got to get up and dance. Well, knucklehead Prince, about three months later, came to really regret that statement because the Citibank was saddled with so much unsellable paper. So that's the situation with Twitter, meaning they're not forcing those bonds into the secondary market, which means the secondary market won't have to reprice all sorts of CLOs and leveraged product. But it's going to dribble that way, Dylan. It's going to start dribbling that way. It's not a crisis like subprime per se. What it is is a crisis of confidence, And the confidence is a slow bleed versus a subprime default or the realization that structured product like the Lehman Brothers situation, or excuse me, it wasn't the Lehman, it was a a Bear Stearns hedge fund that blew up on subprime mortgage debt. That was the canary in the coal mine that just started everything. That was the repricing of the secondary market in 2007. Where are we today? Okay. We are in a situation, as you mentioned, that the 60-40 portfolio has just been decimated. Back in 2007, the Fed was able to cut rates and bonds rallied because yields were, if memory serves, right around where they are today. You know, there was, there was room for the Fed to cut. It wasn't trading at one and a quarter or even 25 basis points, which is where the Fed has come from, to the current three and a quarter percent. There was room for them to cut rates to provide a buffer. Bond prices rise as yields fall, as everybody knows. Yeah, there was a buffering effect there. But we don't have that luxury right now. As you mentioned, the 60-40 portfolio, worst performance in 100 years. The NASDAQ has never been down double digits with long bonds being down double digits in the same quarter. Why? Well, the NASDAQ's only been around since 1970-something. And long bonds have never lost double digits in the last 50 years. They have, if you go way back to the Depression, if I remember correctly, point is, the 60-40 portfolio is experienced the, the worst drawdown in probably close to a century. And Lynn Alden laid this out really well. In terms of a capital destruction number, I think something like $92 trillion of wealth has been vaporized in our battle with inflation this cycle. Compare that to the 2008 timeframe when there was only about $17 trillion of wealth that had had been vaporized. So we're talking orders of magnitude larger. 
we're talking a USA debt spiral where 130% total debt to or government debt to GDP is doesn't leave you with a lot of room. And we've talked about this triple C rated corporations called zombie companies. They are defined as zombie companies when they cannot or come close to only covering their interest expense by one term. If you walk through a credit matrix, Dylan, with a triple A credit down to a single A credit down to a triple B credit down to a triple C credit, the interest coverage ratios at triple A are approximately 10 times, which means your free cash flow or your EBITDA, your pre-tax cash flow, covers your interest expense 10 times. And then you move down to the single A area and it's about four times. And you move to the triple B area, it's about three times interest coverage. And you move to the triple C area, which is your zombie company, it's only one times EBITDA to interest expense. That's one turn of protection. Well, guess where the great country of the USA is right now? One turn. The USA does not even cover their interest expense by one turn after you subtract out entitlements and military spending. And that's with interest rates at historic lows. One and a half percent is the coupon on that debt. Well, when you refinance that debt closer to four and a half percent, which is what the yield curve is, you know, the general balanced or weighted average yield curve is right now, four to four and a half percent. Your interest expense number is going to get markedly worse. Your tax revenues, which last year benefited from some capital gains in 2020, is going to get markedly worse. And you're going to be dealing with an interest coverage ratio of less than a half a turn, which is to say the U.S. needs to borrow money just to fund the interest expense on the debt. That is an awful situation. It's defined as a debt spiral. It is the definition of what is required to print money. The currency becomes the error term. Yes, they'll be able to sell their debt. Yes, Joe Colasari is right. There will be buyers for their debt. That Those buyers, though, may crowd out other borrowers in the world. They might come from the high-yield market. They might come from the CLO market. And the backstop is printing money. All true one hell of a horrible investment opportunity as far as I'm concerned. If you're going to lend to the U.S. Treasury for the next 10 years at a four spot zero five yield, I don't think you should be managing money, my friend. Okay, it's that simple. Because after inflation, after debasement of your currency, and after all the true risks that you were taking, four spot zero five percent yield does not cover it. Is there a trade there? Yeah, bulls, bears, and pigs. As I said, if you put a gun to my head, I would be long treasuries for the first time in about 15 years, okay? I covered a short, made about 50% return on a short treasury trade. I thought U.S. yields were rich, but European yields were asinine. Well, you brought up LDI and the liability-driven investing over in the UK because they had to lever their bond returns to try and meet their bogeys. We're being run by a bunch of preschoolers right now, okay? I have never seen such horrible risk management in my entire life. It's an absolute shame that pensioners have their trust with these people that think the right solution is to lever manipulated low yields in order to enhance the returns. And yeah, I'm talking to you, Calpers. Okay, you buffoons. You guys have levered your portfolio exactly the same way that the UK gilt market did. It's an embarrassment. If I'm a teacher in California right now, I have no idea what you're doing because I don't follow that. That is your job. And guess what? You're doing a shitty job of it. You should turn in your papers. You're an embarrassment to risk management. Well, that's my little venting. Go ahead. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. 
Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Love it. I got one more question for you and then I'll, I'll turn it to the group. So when so when I'm looking at the bond market, and this is the something I've been trying to figure out since since I really started digging into, into this stuff in, in late, late 2019, 2020, and like particularly after the COVID, you know, monetary stimulus, when you, like everyone says, you know, the bond, the bond market is, you know, like sniffs out the, the bluff, like the, the bond market is the smart money. But when I look at inflation expectations, right, the bond market has been flat out wrong, particularly the last two years in, in a huge, huge way. Like if you look at five-year or 10-year inflation expectations of like, you know, 1.5, 2%, somewhere in that range in, in 2021 even, well, take your 10% inflation or whatever the, you know, year-over-year inflation is just over the last 18 months and those those break-even inflation expectations, that's that's priced in all the CPI increase, right? So from a, from a, like a fixed income standpoint, you've you've already, even even though the bonds had actually negative real yields for a while, the the Yield, the real yields are now positive when you look at right the expected inflation expectations, but you know fixed income as an asset class over not a trade, but if, if I'm buying a ten year treasury, a thirty year treasury, and these inflation expectations are like three percent on a Kager basis. I, I could be wrong there on the thirty year expectations, but the point is, Greg, when we were in Amsterdam, you were showing me you're like literally they're they're publishing this in the CBO. It's the it's the debt expectations, right, or the the U.S. federal debt. And they're, they're mapping this out and, the, and the, the amount of debt that the U.S. is expected to be in, that they're actually telling you, so it's probably going to be higher, is just outrageous. And so as a bond holder, for, for, for me, like, you know, would I buy bonds as a trade? Yeah, maybe, probably. I mean, as a scalp um, or maybe some short-dated stuff to get like, you know, to, to yield farm and get some, some returns on, on some short-end cash. But like the fixed income investment thesis, even today, even despite the bond sell-off, like, why would you, why would you buy that? Because I feel like, the, I don't know, I, I, the inflation expectations, are those warped? Are they like, is that, you know, even though it's been terribly mispriced the last two years, is that somehow priced in or is like, no, is it still no. fantasy land? It's a great question. Look, the truth is those inflation expectations are notoriously wrong. Okay. Two years ago, inflation expectations for this year were 2%. And today inflation is over 8%. It's an expectation. It's nothing more than, well, the Fed says we have a 2% target, so let's trust the Fed that their 2% inflation expectation is going to come true. Inflation expectations are fickle. They're always wrong. They are, don't forget, Dylan, people have to own bonds when their investment policy committee basically says we're managing the equivalent of a 60-40 portfolio. 40% has to be in fixed income. That is their investment policy guidelines. They don't have the leniency to change that. It takes a long time for them to change it. So what happens is you just get a bunch of sheep following the leader and saying, well, you know, greater fool theory, I'll, I'll buy bonds with a negative yield. The only way I can make money is if yields go more negative, picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. But nonetheless, if enough people do it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. There was a term when I was started trading back in the 1980s and 1990s. They were called the bond vigilantes. Yeah, these were serious bond players, Solomon Brothers of the world that would take on the Fed and push prices to where Solly wanted prices to go. The problem is that the bond vigilantes have been so beaten up because the Fed was a one-way wrecking machine just always lowering rates regardless of 
what the true economic outlook was and what potential inflation expectations were, Dylan, that the inflation expectations basically got reverse engineered into the market, in my opinion. But the bond vigilantes are going to come back, but they're going to come back as credit vigilantes, Dylan. They're not going to come back as inflation vigilantes. And that's basically what I'm trying to say to you. People will become bond vigilantes with a credit angle to it, with the reality that if the USA was a corporation, it would be rated triple C, full stop. I mean, that's a pretty damning piece of evidence. And what you referred to was the Congressional Budget Office, their own projections that, honest to God, I could show that to my 10th, you know, 10th grade daughter, and I go, would you buy this piece of shit? And she'd look at it and go, are you out of your mind? I mean, this thing's on its... I wouldn't give a credit card to those people, let alone, you know, an ability to borrow $31 trillion. This is an absolute disgrace to risk management. But the USA has always believed, and up until now, rightly so, that they will be the dollar of last demand. Meaning, everyone will sell all their other sovereign debt before they have to get out of treasuries. They will sell all their high-yield bonds. They'll sell all their bank debt. All of this could be true. I'll just say that the world rapidly collapses if that's the case. The crowding out of treasury borrowing, sucking funds from other silos such as high yield I mentioned, other sovereign borrowers around the world. Look, the USA will be the last country to fail. There's no question about that. But there's 180 other countries in the world that are going to fail before the USA. And that's a lot of blood in the streets of their bond markets, Turkey's a G11 country. Canada's a G7 country. If you think the USA is bad, have a gander at the Canadian credit metrics, okay? Not to mention the fact that our prime minister makes Joe Biden look like some sort of genius, okay? So at the end of the day, it's really, really scary, the quality of managements of the various countries around the world when they make statements like our prime minister made that the budget will balance itself, etc. Dylan, I stress to you, Bond vigilantes will be back, but they will be credit vigilantes. They will focus on credit. Inflation may or may not take care of itself. And I'll throw this out to you. One of the ways that inflation could take care of itself is the Fed decides to move the goalposts. They just say, you know what? 2% is the wrong number. Let's put it at 4 to 5%. You know, mission accomplished. We conquered inflation because we moved the goalposts. What do the credit guys do? Oh, all right. Now we'll really focus on credit. So be very careful. Credit is always running the world. And when bonds move from being priced, when I say that treasury bonds move from being priced with an inflation concern to being priced with a credit concern, well, all I can say is look out below because that's when contagion gets really ugly. That's when you lose confidence in a market. And if you lose confidence in the U.S. treasury market, Joe Calasari is absolutely correct, as you are, as other guys are. If the U.S. Treasury market doesn't function, every single other market in the world is gummed up and not functioning. Yes, that includes equities. Over to you. All right. I said it was my last question. I, I have one more for you. I might have just forgotten it. Jeez. You know what? I'm just going to turn it over to the group. Hey, I can jump in while you're or thinking, by the way, Foss, Dylan is is uh, covering me because I'm I'm sick and I just have this uh, cough that keeps coming out of nowhere. So apologies if I suddenly bail out on you. But love this, by the way. Thanks for your insights, man. You're you're a, a fount of wisdom, and we appreciate appreciate your insights. Um, I have a question for you. So so you talk a lot about financial repression and the financial repression playbook. I would suggest that Japan is already in full financial repression mode right now with their yield curve control, right? So meaning they're keeping their interest rates, they're forcing them low, at least the 10-year, they're keeping it low, and they're they're doing it on the back of debasing their currency. Do you see this happening in the United States this time around? Is that coming in the next year or two, or is this further down the road? Like, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your view on that for the United States? Well, yeah, you know, it's a great question. And again, the short answer is nobody knows. The long answer is it's their only out okay the mathematics indicates that is the only escape route i guess the reality could be that nobody in the world cares that the usa has a 30 trillion dollar deficit on the way to hundreds of trillions of dollars and they'll keep allowing the usa to print money to keep this monopoly money going 
I would just say, yes, I think it's coming because it's the only mathematical solution. And that mathematical, I base everything on math. But if it doesn't come, it doesn't matter to me anyway, because all paths lead to Bitcoin, Jeff. Every single outcome that you can play, any scenario, own Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin is absolutely such a beautiful investment opportunity, because not only is it cheap, I think it's cheap by a factor of 10, but not only is Bitcoin cheap, but all paths lead to it. You don't have to say, oh, well, if this happens, then you don't want to own Bitcoin. No, I'm sorry. Every single path leads to Bitcoin. Every single path, in other words, leads to currency debasement. Everyone can say, oh, the DXY is such a beautiful thing. I'm going to have to say it again in the presence of you guys. I always say this. The USA is just the best looking horse at a glue factory, right? Like nobody for one iota thinks that the USA will not be debased. It's just debasing at a lower or a slower acceleration than every other fiat currency in the world. So it's a game of relative devaluation. And the USA right now, the DXY is hitting, you know, cycle highs. That doesn't matter in the long run. It will destroy all other economies, third world economies. And that path leads to Bitcoin or the USA invokes yield curve control and DXY weakens. Well, that path leads to Bitcoin as well. So I, I'm in the camp with James Lavish, Luke Roman, that the mathematics only indicate the only solution is a form of financial repression and yield curve control in the USA. But it doesn't matter, guys. Try not to overthink it. Either way, you have global depression or you have yield curve control and why weakening. Well, guess what? Both of them require you own Bitcoin as insurance. That's why it's a pretty easy trade, in my opinion. So let me do a, Can I do a part B on that quick, Dylan? Yeah. Okay, cool. So so financial repression, that playbook, Foss, as you know, worked really well in the late 40s, right? Post-World War II, that, that worked beautifully. But things are different now. And the main difference is now, back then, gold was illegal to own, right? And Bitcoin didn't exist. And so I see those two things as sort of an escape hatch or a release valve from this financial repression. Because of that, do you think those things will limit the effectiveness of financial repression? Or what's your take on that? Well, the other thing you didn't mention back in the 1940s was the USA was a trade exporter, right? Was a net exporter. Now it's a net importer. It's the one of the, you know, the world's greatest trade deficit. And you cannot, so as you know that your 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 formula for GDP, Y equals C plus I plus G minus net exports, right? Well, if your net exports are importing, then you are using GDP by importing goods and services from the rest of the world. In the 1940s, the USA had a trade surplus. So today it doesn't work. That whole thing about you having your using the 1940s playbook doesn't work in the USA right now. And then the second part of your question, and this is, you know, the harder part to answer is still gold is a rounding error, right? Like gold still is, if I'm off by a couple of trillion dollars, don't send me to jail, but like gold's a $10 trillion asset value and Bitcoin is half a billion or 400, excuse me, half a trillion or 400 billion to be more exact. Um, so it's a rounding, rounding error. And you got 900 trillion of global assets. You got you were on a call today with the guys from Block, uh, where they block where? Yeah, block where Joe uh, Consorti and his partner did some really cool analysis where they said global real estate is 363 trillion. Well, I know global real estate is 300 trillion US dollars, but let's not split hairs. Global real estate compared to global gold is at least 30 times the size. So that's the assets you focus on. You don't focus on the assets like, you know, the rounding error assets like gold and, and Bitcoin. Focus on the bond market, which is total global debt market, 400 trillion. Global real estate, 300 trillion. All Bitcoin and gold, and I'll throw those in the same basket because I just don't care. All those have to do is peel off some of the risk that is, or some of the allocation that is in real estate as a store of value. And bonds, which have been a horrible store of value and will continue to be a horrible store of value. If the incremental flows come to Bitcoin, and, again, and gold, but 
let's focus on Bitcoin, from those other two assets, I don't care about the gold side. And, you know, this is the problem that I have with, like, I love Larry Lapard. I think everybody should love Larry Lapard just because he's one smart guy and his heart is bigger than all outdoors, okay? He wants this to succeed. Okay, so he came from the gold market. He, he's got a bias to long-term value in gold. Don't hold that against him. He understands the value of sound money. And he believes that Bitcoin is better sound money than gold. That being said, there's a lot of people that have not gone down the rabbit hole from the gold side that have been trying to find fault with the U.S. fiscal policy and monetary policy for the last 20 years. And if, if Bitcoin swoops in and steals their thunder right now, well, that's just how markets work. But gold is not our enemy. Our enemy is USA debt spiral, USA money printing, horrible fiscal and monetary management at all central bankers. And then we can even go to that store of value, which was real estate for a while that the boys laid out a pretty compelling case today that, yeah, that monetary premium in real estate should make its way to Bitcoin. So hopefully that answers your question. I guess what I'm talking about is focus on the elephants in the room, the, the hundreds trillion dollar asset bases not the ones that are measured in 10 trillion or even in the case of Bitcoin, half a trillion in market cap. Again, it's so insignificant, so small. That's what makes me so excited about the asymmetric upside potential of these uh, opportunities. Well said. Yeah, Greg, I think it's really interesting to think about too, similar to kind of like private equity in a way where like global real estate has a $300 trillion asset. I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about this rapid discount rate repricing higher you know, as duration duration got sold off in, in record fashion, even though I understand like, you know, the housing market dynamics are to jurisdiction and, and you know, like the United States in, in particular has way, way less variable rates compared to fixed as it did previously. Um, but price is set at the margin for any asset. Real estate is, is relatively very, very illiquid, despite it being a monster size. And so when you see instead of interest rates at zero and, and 30 year mortgages at 2% versus now 7%, 7% plus, you know, that's an interesting component, you know, say over the next decade or two, as you know, real estate, probably in nominal terms, maybe just continues to go up and to the right. I, I mean, I don't know. But I think in real terms, you know, that, that cash puppy, that real estate was where you lever up with, you know, 10%, 20% money, and you just and you just ride the lower lows and in interest rates and refi and just, and just load up on more debt. Maybe that's in real terms is no longer is no longer viable compared to what you know say since 1980, right? As it's yeah. topped. Yeah, it's a great question, Dylan. Look, there's a couple of things here where new issues in debt reprice the markets. Trades in commercial real estate office properties will reprice the cap rates that are used to value large realist commercial real estate holdings. Okay. And right now I know for a fact that everybody's just holding their breath. Oh, please don't sell that office tower or don't, don't let that office tower clear with a cap rate of 6% because I have all my portfolio valued at three and a quarter percent. And as you know, if you increase the cap rate, the value of the property goes down, just like bond prices go down. Uh, this is a, symptom of an illiquid market. Here's a little, a couple of things for the American listeners here. So first of all, Canada does not have 30 year mortgages. Okay. We have 30 year amortizations, but the longest term on the mortgage is 10 years. That's the longest you can lock in your, your mortgage rate for. And typically they're five years and most Canadians have variable rate mortgages. They're getting skewered right now. Okay. Absolutely destroyed. So the Canadian housing market is in bad shape. We never had the subprime mortgage crisis that they had in the USA. So Canadian property values relative to the US are actually higher and more overvalued than they are in the USA. But here's the kicker that I don't think a lot of people understand. In Canada, mortgages are recourse, which means it's not just the value of your house that's on the line. The borrower is also on the line. Whereas, you know, in the United States, you take a mortgage on your house and all of a sudden the property value drops on your house, you just hand the key over to your banker. Here you go, you got the key, you made a bad loan, I'm an idiot, but I'm walking away from this mortgage. In Canada, you can't walk away. There's recourse to the borrower. That means the Canadian consumer is on the hook double to what the US consumer is on the hook. Again, Canada is in bad shape. Our banks do not syndicate the mortgages or securitize them. 
Those mortgages are on the balance sheets of the banks. Yes, the banks are levered 25 times. Yes, it's the same banking model that is used in the United States. I will just tell you, though, Canadian bank stocks look awfully rich to me. I would not be an owner of Canadian bank stocks here if you have done any shred of work on what the commercial and residential mortgage risks are to the bank balance sheets. I'm not saying full out, go out and short the Canadian banks. I'm just saying do your work. Yes, the Canadian bank stocks are risky, at least as risky as they were in 2008, in my opinion, if not more risky. So do be careful. The Canadian mortgage market is markedly different than the U.S. mortgage market. There's a lot of pain to come. Again, don't get outside your comfort zone. Every single Canadian owns Canadian banks. Why? Well, they're too big to fail. True. But they're not too big for the price to fall. And they own it because the dividend yield on the banks is so juicy. <laughs> it's not that juicy anymore when government bond yields have backed up to the, to the level they have. So lots of reason to be cautious in the Canadian bank stock market right now. Greg, I'm curious because you're so good at this stuff. Do you think there? Do you think the Canadian bank credit risk is similar to what's going on over in Europe and the UK, or do you think the Europe and UK are much worse than Canada? Yeah, great question, Jeff. No, Europe and UK are so much worse. So just in context, the Canadian TD Bank in Canada is worth about 115 billion dollars. Uh, credit Suisse is worth 10 billion. Okay. When I started working at TD 20 years ago, we would only wish that we were valued at the same value as Credit Suisse First Boston, let alone 10 times the value that it's valued at now. So Credit Suisse is uh, systematically uh, imploded with horrible lending, terrible prime brokerage. You know, the Archegos, Bill Huang, that was all Credit Suisse. They lost $4 billion. You lose $4 billion here, you lose $4 billion there. Pretty soon you're talking real money, right? So Credit Suisse is, has absolutely done a marvelous job of destroying shareholder capital for the last 30 years. The Canadian banks are in much better shape from a market value protection basis in terms of the market value of the equity, which is their risk-absorbing capital. But doesn't mean that the bank the book value of the bank is not at risk because the banks, as you know, do not mark their loans to market. They only take credit losses when the loans become impaired. And as soon as, as long as the commercial real estate properties are not impaired because the big pension funds have not had to write down the value of those assets because the cap rates supposedly have not changed, Jeff, well, everybody's whistling by the graveyard, right? Okay, don't do it this quarter. We got to make our numbers. Please, no one write down. Make sure there's no big office tower that trades with a cap rate that's going to blow up my entire portfolio. It's, it's no difference whether it's subprime. It's no difference whether it's Latin American debt back in the 1980s. These credit silos, these areas of credit distress, no one wants to acknowledge that they're for real until you know someone says, hey, guess what? I can buy the debt at 25 cents on the dollar. Why are you still holding it on your books at 100 cents on the dollar? And that's when they have to start allocating loan loss reserves and, you know, managing. So a bank's earnings, Jamie Dimon, send me your hate mail. You know very well, sir, that your bank earnings are 100% massaged. All are controlled by your loan loss expectations and the provisions for credit losses that you take. Okay. That's why it is such a subjective, a subjective practice of announcing bank earnings, because it all depends on what sort of provisions for credit losses the banks declare in any given part of the cycle. And when it comes right down to it, when you're 25 times levered, because that's what banks are, which is to say that they only have $4 of equity capital for every $100 of loans, that $4 of equity capital can get vaporized very quickly. And when you have provisions for credit losses, it's not about earnings per share. It's about, holy smokes, what is the true book value of my, of my bank stock versus where I believe it to be trading. And, you know, the price to book is an antiquated, antiquated metric for valuing bank stocks. In the depths of a credit crisis, any bank stock that's trading at more than one half times book is probably way overpriced. Because why? The market is pricing in credit losses, mark to market accounting on an entire loan book where you only have $4 of buffer. 
How many times does a junk bond go down by more than $4? Well, I spent my whole life in the junk bond market trading bonds that were down $40, not $4. And guess who owns the prior claim? Yeah, the banks own all the prior ranking debt. Their debt is offside as well. So it's a game of uh, massaging earnings. It's part of the Fiat Ponzi. This Fiat Ponzi runs deep, people. It runs deep because the banking system itself is over-levered. That's how the banking or the Fiat Ponzi works. And it starts with the banks and ends with the banks. So Canada's in trouble, but the US, the Euro banks are in way, way worse trouble than the Canadian banks. Just my opinion, not financial advice. Send hate mail to Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Greg, I'm thinking about my question from earlier, kind of going back a little bit. And if you don't want to talk about this anymore, that's totally fine. But in the case where the Fed and I, I got to give props to Macroscope 17, I believe is, is his handle, kind of talking about the bond market and, and Bitcoin and, and the risks that have, that have been in the bond market uh, for quite some time. In a scenario where they do say, okay, the, the 2% thing, you know, in, in 2020, they, when they were attempting to actually overshoot inflation, they said, okay, hey, you know, we're going to work on inflation average targeting where, you know, the last decade we had such disinflationary outcomes and CPI, you know, 1.8 or 1.6 or whatever the, the prints were that we can, you know, we can have it above average, above 2% on average, so or above 2% for some time. So it averages out, right? And then they, you know, inflation is transitory and all of a sudden we're in this kind of inflationary crisis. And so in a scenario where the Fed comes out and says, okay, guys, like, you know, and maybe they don't do this. Maybe they, they really just drill markets into the ground until they, you know, CPI recedes to 2%. Personally, I think it gets ugly in financial markets before that. But regardless, if they said tomorrow, hey, we'll just do 4% now, right? Doesn't the bond market just in that, you know, right as those words come across the screen, get sold off in just a massive, massive way? Or, or whatever. Having, having, never, having never lived that scenario, Dylan, I don't know. Yes, I think that is the most likely scenario. But here's the funny thing. It's like bonds are just holding their breath here as well, right? Like they, 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 they're relying, again, they're relying on inflation coming under control when there's no rational argument that inflation should come back under control, right? We're at 4% in the US 10-year and CPI is still twice that. Why? Well, I don't know. When I started trading bonds in the 1980s and CPI was 8%, Volcker had Fed funds up at around 12%. So this is a different scenario, different time. This is bond managers who have been polluted by their own intoxication, never having to live in a market where CPI was as high as it is now. So don't forget, there's not a bond manager around that's been managing bonds for less than 40 years that has any idea what they're doing right now. Because they've never experienced this before. So a lot of this is, you know, you sort of suck and blow. You try and figure stuff out. You, you, you say bonds, are, they're, they're great value here at a 4.5% or a 4% 10-year. Because I thought they were great value at 2%. And I was so wrong that now that they're at 4%, they have to be really good value. And I'm talking about, you know, some of these bond Harry dents of the world and guys that were calling for negative uh, interest rates. I mean, the math only works if you get to negative yields and, and he manages bonds. He might he could have turned around and told everybody to take their money out of his out of his funds because he might have believed that, uh, you know, they the bonds had had the, the best run ever and he shouldn't be picking up more nickels in front of a steamroller. But he didn't. And, you know, OK, bonds look really good here because he was still bullish on bonds when they were, you know, one and a half percent yields. I'm afraid that you can never remove that human element from it that, you know, a trade that goes from the top left. If you're looking at a chart, a price chart and, it, you know, this is yields, they go from 14 percent down to one percent. You got to assume they go negative in order for you still to make capital gains like you've made over the last 20 years. So let's not spend too much time on the on the reality that. Anybody who's managing bonds right now has no clue where things are going because they have never managed bonds in this type of environment before. And I will say also that people forget inflation compounds, right? That is the hardest thing for people to remember. If inflation goes down to 2% over the next five years, you have an 8%, 6%, 4%, 3%, 2% number in front of it that has caused the destruction over the last five years that you have not been compensated for. So you might be some sort of hero calling inflation five years out to be down by down in the 2% area. 
but you've lived through four years of subpar returns, negative real returns. You've done a shit job. Bond managers, they were never vigilantes in the last 20 years, Dylan. They got lulled to sleep by, you know, the Fed put and all the stuff where the Fed would always ride into the markets and rescue the markets. One of the things I'd like to focus on for the last 10 minutes of the conversation would be what could happen at the November 2nd meeting here and a definition of a pivot if you guys want to spend some time on that. Go for yeah. it. So look, let's, let's talk about what the whole, everybody in the market is hoping for, including, you know, trying to parse lines from Nick Tamaros or however you say his last name, the, the Fed leak at the Wall Street Journal, you know, who can, you know, on a weekly basis, he comes out saying, you know, different uh, Fed uh, speak, oh, they're more hawkish now, they're less hawkish, now they're concerned, now uh, Yellen was never concerned about liquidity and two days later, she's concerned about liquidity in the treasury market. It's an absolute clown show. But let's start by defining what could happen in November 2nd. So right now we're at three and a quarter percent Fed funds overnight. And the U.S. two-year, which is a good proxy for where the market will expect Fed rates to go, right now is almost four and a half percent, which means there's a lot of room between Fed funds and U.S. two-year rates for the Fed to bump up the overnight rate by 75 basis points gets them to 4%. Then another 225 basis points increases gets them to the current two-year yield, okay? That's sort of what the market has priced in right now. And I don't think the market will shit the bed too badly if they raise by 75 and then they turn around and say, and we have a couple more 25 to 50 basis points hikes and then we'll be done. Somewhere between four and a half and 5% is where they finish their hiking cycle. That's a Goldman Sachs outlook. Goldman Sachs is no more special than Oss and Foss and Ross and company, but Goldman Sachs happens to have a bigger bat at the table. So if Goldman Sachs is saying that, and the market's supposed to think that, run the numbers with a 5% coupon on U.S. Treasury debt, fellas, and tell me how long you'll lend money to the U.S. Treasury when they don't even cover their interest expense one quarter times, okay? This is not a zombie country anymore. It's an absolute death spiral where people are like, I don't know why I would ever lend money to these clowns because it's going to be debased away. And this is where the mathematics is the most important. Don't get caught up on a definition of a pivot. I think they stop somewhere around four and a quarter, meaning I think they might do 50 and then another 50. I don't care. Because the math does not support the U.S. being able to sustain their deficit at anything above 3.5%. Which means any rate rises that get us to 4% handles or close to 5% handles just accelerates the debt spiral so quickly that anyone who's taken grade 11 math looks at themselves and say, my 60-40 portfolio should actually be 60% equities and 40% anything but bonds that can preserve capital and have a growth component to it or an insurance component. And it better not be meta stock, okay? That thing is a dumpster fire run by a guy who got lucky and is now in charge of a, co a company that's burning so much cash that its forward price earnings ratio on meta right now is an absolute sham. But that's where everybody is hidden out in the fang stocks because they had this myth mythical thing called growth. And as you guys know, when you price a perpetuity, it's one over R minus G where your G offsets your discount rate you need on your, your perpetuity, which is to say, if you have a growth stock that's growing at 10%, in theory, you could have a 15% discount on the cash flows the R component, but because they're growing at 10% annually, you have a 20 times multiple. One over 15 minus 10 is one over 0 0.05. That's a 20 times multiple, people. That's when stocks get overvalued. Why did it get to that price? Well, because bonds were negative yielding. It brought the price of capital down to close to zero. As Larry Lapard says, when you have a 0% discount rate, any positive cash flow gets valued at infinity. That was the reality that the Fred, Fed brought to us. And the idiot money managers had no other alternatives 
but to pretend that these models worked, okay? We are in the midst of a great repricing. Don't overthink things. A Fed pivot can be defined in many different ways, but the biggest outcome of this whole thing, the credit vigilantes are going to resurface and re you know and revive themselves dylan it's not inflation that we have to worry about it's the credit vigilantes that's where i spent my life these guys are ruthless it's no fun being a credit vigilante why because bonds are asymmetric to the downside bonds never go up tenfold in value they only go from 100 cents on the dollar to zero they never go from 100 cents on the dollar to a thousand cents on the dollar only equities do that unless only it's bitcoin the- Unless it's the Austria 100-year bond when the music's playing. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, that math didn't work either, though, right? I mean, it, you know, it goes up, but it also comes down. That same Austria 100-year bond is in it down, like, at, at 30 yeah, cents yeah. on the dollar now. So, like, yeah. that's convexity. Duration and convexity. Understand your first and second derivatives of bond pricing. If you don't understand that, you shouldn't be, under, you shouldn't be managing money. You probably should have taken more physics classes. I can't help but think how many people who don't really understand mathematics are, are managing money right now. Because you know what? They were really good at marketing and they got Ivy League marketing degree and they went and managed money because their daddy was managing money already. That's the problem with the fiat system or mummy. Their daddy or mummy was managing money and they got to be a money manager just because mummy and daddy were money managers already. That's the problem with the fiat system. Too many rookies sitting in risk chairs the biggest rookie sitting in a risk chair right now, his name's Jerome Powell. <laughs> okay, one last one last question, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but I was kind of thinking uh, when when I think of Bitcoin in this you know future environment, I think of essentially like if you look at say the Bank of Japan and the Fed and the JP you know, the Japanese yen and the U.S. dollar, if you look like look at JPY USD as as the Bank of Japan's printing money to kind of defend that. 25 basis point, a 10 year peg. Rate, yeah, right? so the peg, yeah, the they're, peg, they're basically the putting peg. a floor on that bond price. And and because of that, the currency is just selling off in, in, in a huge, huge way. I think of, and, and we're obviously not there, the Fed's not stepping in to, to put liquidity into the market. They're not printing. But in a world where, say, they say, okay, you know, the, the 10 years at three and a half, or the 10 years at four, or the 10 years at three, or whatever that, that you know, that terminal rate is on, on long duration debt. That again needs to be under the the rate of inflation compounded over the next ten years to get this overall debt burden down. I think of Bitcoin as like the dollar in the uh, uh, in this scenario where it's just compared to the yen, right? Where like where BTC is just taking all of that or a lot of that liquidity because there's there's you know it's a system of financial repression. Is that is that like a fair kind of basic way to think about it? I think so. I, again, this is new new terrain for all of us, and that's the exciting part. There's a lot of learning that we have to go through on both sides of the Bitcoin argument, okay? There's guys that are short Bitcoin against long tech stocks, and they're allowed to do that. I think it's a ridiculous trade, but they have more money than I do right now, and they can force markets to go in whatever direction they want. But I, I always try and take, you know, move it back to mathematics, okay? Bitcoin is just such a rounding error in the context of global real, global assets. So half a trillion dollars versus 900 trillion in total. The number of Bitcoiners in the world, if maybe 170 million, which is probably an overstatement, it's, it's mice nuts compared to the global po- population of eight and change billion. But if that 170 million people were a country... Well, then it starts adding up. So yeah, you have to sort of back and forth this, Dylan, in terms of trying to understand where we are and how early we can be, but also that we've reached a point of critical mass, in my opinion. The risk in Bitcoin right now, not to mention that the volatility is lower. Now, it won't last, I don't think, but who knows, won't last that the volatility of Bitcoin is lower than the S&P and the Dow and the NASDAQ on trailing a one-month vol. That being said, it is where it is. We're learning. There's more people coming into Bitcoin on a daily basis, including institutional holders. They understand the beauty of a non-correlated asset. All of this is to say that Bitcoin's only been around for 13 years. I mean, it takes these battleships a lot longer to turn than it takes a speed a speedboat, right? If you're a big asset manager, and you've been resisting getting into Bitcoin, but all the competition is getting into it, you're begrudgingly getting into studying digital assets and hopefully focusing on Bitcoin. Why? 
Well, if because if you don't, you're going to lose clients to the competition. I saw it happen in the high yield market in Canada. It took a period of about 20 years. It hasn't even started in the asset management business globally yet. So let's say we might be one year into it. We still have 19 years for this to play out. In the absence of a global financial calamity, hopefully we develop this parallel system that will rescue the Fiat Ponzi because that's all it is. The Fiat Ponzi is only math. We know how it ends. We don't want it to happen tomorrow. We need to develop this parallel network. It's called Bitcoin. Get on board, people. 0% allocation to Bitcoin is irresponsible. Okay, Bitcoin is less risky now and a better return at the current price than when I got involved in Bitcoin at under $1,000 US per Bitcoin in 2016. And why is that? Well, because of adoption, because of the fact that the response by governments to COVID and all that have, have been, I never thought I would see these types of responses with $9 trillion of global money printing, but it's a fact, it's happened. So change your investment policy as the information changes. Always look at your exposure, reevaluate your exposure. If you have a 5% exposure and it goes up 20 fold, yeah, you're allowed to take money off the table. That's what risk management is. You're allowed to sell some of your now 50% exposure because your 5% went up 20 times to make it 100%, but the other 95% of your portfolio is now 50% of your portfolio. If you follow what I'm trying to say, you're allowed to rebalance risk. That's what risk managers do, okay? As the information changes, don't become Peter Schiff. Don't get stuck on the fact that you were an imbecile 20 years or 13 years ago, and you're still an imbecile. There's times where you can reverse. You can actually not be an imbecile for your whole life. I'm not sure if Shifty Pete will never be an imbecile for his whole life, but lots of people are not imbeciles for their whole lives. Here's to, here's cheers to Shifty Pete. You fucking moron. Get on board. Do the math. You're 99% there. You're just too much of a stubborn mule to realize, or a donkey. Yes, you are a donkey. Understand when the information changes, you have to change your investment thesis or you will be out of business. Have a good afternoon, guys. It's 5.04. I guess I have a couple more questions if you want. Legendary stuff. That's all I got. I don't know if anyone else has anything, but we really respect you coming on here, Greg. Yeah, dude. Can I ask yeah, one more question, Foss? Can I pick your credit credit risk brain? Yeah, 100%. 100%. One more question, and this, this will be my last one, just because I'm so curious about this. And by the way, that was an awesome synopsis on Bitcoin. Way to go. I love it. You're, you're, you're inspiring, man. Junk bonds, right? Triple C companies. They've survived based on the, the blessings of the Federal Reserve and, and lower and lower interest rates since the last financial crisis. Lots of them should have gone under. We should have seen lots of creative destruction over the last 10 years, but didn't because of financial manipulation, monetary manipulation. Are we going to see a bust in, in, in the junk bond market this time around? What's your take? I, I believe so. I mean, the first credits to fall will be the anything that's less credit worthy than the USA is much more susceptible to falling than the USA. And when I say less credit worthy, I don't just mean on a credit metrics basis. Let's be honest. I mean, the USA still has the... Uh, biggest economy in the world, the most enterprising people. They love freedom by and large. They know how to make money. They're fucking tough as nails. Okay. These are all great components of a, of a country that you want to invest in. And the capital will be pulled from those other zombie companies that have been, or zombie investments that have been supported by easy monetary policy up until now. Yes, there should have been creative destruction. That is what defines capitalism. The burning of the capital structure where debt becomes equity and equity becomes worthless. That's a tried and true tradition for recreating companies that grow out of the ashes. And here's a little tidbit of information for you guys. There is a gem of an investment opportunity out in the markets right now in a structure, a, a part of the structural structure of Argo blockchain. I dare you guys to find it, okay? It's absolutely ridiculous. Go and find it and tell me that there is not the ability to capitalize on stupid money still in the system I will just tell you, this is what gets me excited. This is why I love being a distressed debt investor because there's so much stupid money in the world that was supported by false interest rates and easy monetary policy. We have not paid 
the price of stupid investments until now. We are starting, people are starting to pay the price of making stupid investments. So that is what makes America great, okay? America still is the bastion of free market capital. It's a little less free than it was, but it's still the greatest chance we have of overcoming the Chinas and the Russias and all these other state-sponsored control mechanism. God bless the United States, because if the USA doesn't live, Canada is so pooched, it's not funny. I don't really know where I'd want to live. I don't think Elon will get us to Mars in time. So let's hope that the USA gets their head back into the USA's traditional way of bulls, bears, and pigs. There's always a price. Don't tell me there's not a price. Figure out what that price is, and we can solve this thing for the kids. Okay, let's solve this for the kids. Love it. Love it. Foss, nice little gem there on the, the Argo the Argo security. And, and maybe you're just not talking about the equity. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Longtime subscriber of Bitcoin Magazine Pro. Appreciate all your support and, and sharing some of the stuff we do. And we definitely have to do this again at some point. So I think this is, this is a wrap. Cheers, guys. My pleasure, guys. Thanks Thank so much, you for everyone. listening. Thank you for listening. I enjoy and learning from all of you. I've learned a ton from you, Dylan, and a ton from you, Dr. Jeff. I see Joe Colasari in the audience. We don't always see eye to eye, but at the end of the day, we'll shake hands like two guys that went into the corner in a hockey game and punched the lights out of each other. And then we share a beer afterwards. Why? Because we want to fucking win this game for the kids, okay? I'm sick and tired of people who don't have the responsibility to say, you know what? I was wrong. We got to fix this. So let's start doing it. Look forward to seeing you guys anywhere and everywhere. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.